0: The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in November
1: 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM, Satellite Radio, and the American Theater Wing. I'm John Von Susten, program director of XM28 on Broadway.
0: And I'm Howard Sherman, executive director of the American Theater Wing.
1: Today we welcome the acclaimed playwright, Terrence McNally. Hi, Terrence. Hi. How are you? I- I'm great. I just want to go through a few of your credits, because you have a <laughs> list of plays and musicals that is so long, but... Tony Awards for The Kiss of the Spider Woman is best musical, uh, Love, Valor, Compassion, Master Class as Best Play, Ragtime, Best Book of a Musical, and a Pulitzer Prize nomination for a perfect Ganish. Other musicals that you've written include The Rink, The Full Monty, Cheetah Rivera, The Dancer's Life, and a slew of shows, including one that originally was on Broadway in nineteen seventy five and now is back as a revival at Roundabout, which is of course The Ritz. Right. And You wrote that as a farce. You had Mm -hmm. not written farces before, or I don't think even since. No. They're too hard. (laughs) Yeah. Why did you write it in the first place?
2: Uh, I think I was attracted to the form.
1: Uh
2: Uh-huh. My plays are notoriously low on plot. I think the drama in life is moment to moment, Uh not the end of act one he finds out he was adopted. I don't like that kind of play. So Uh I thought I should challenge myself with a really plotty play with subplots and and uh, I loved Fado plays when I saw them. One of the first plays I saw when I came to New York was Hotel Paradiso with Burt Lahr and Angela Lansbury. Oh. And uh, so I was, was intrigued by the form, but boy, it was a lot of work. Uh, we went. These were the good old days of going out of town. We went to the National Theater in Washington, learned a lot, and really worked very hard our three weeks there playing to very empty houses uh it was also christmas and holiday week washington closes up i guess the producer didn't know that so even if we've gotten raves i don't think anyone mm-hmm. would have been there but that's kind of nice because she'd really try bold things with she's performance and by the time we opened in new york we were in pretty good shape and uh The play turned out very happily and I never expected to see it again because it's a very large cast. Music, cast of 30 and uh, I thought, well, that'll probably not get done. And then AIDS came along and anything that took place in such a milieu was, I didn't think was appropriate timing. Mm -hmm. And then... About two years ago, we did a reading of it. It seemed, yeah, I think we can look back at a, at a happier time in the sexual revolution, the, the wonderful exuberance of life in New York in the early 70s. And uh, Rosie read it and Kevin, and then we said, this is great. And then it took a couple of years for us all to get together to be free. You know, Joe suddenly was busy doing wicked. I was doing my things. And sometimes it just takes a while to get together, everybody in the same room. And here we are now. And I was shocked. Someone said, how long ago was this play written? I said, oh, probably about 20 years ago. And (laughs) someone said, you either can't count or you've erased a good decade and a half. It was 75, 32 years ago.
1: Well, how does a farce differ from a comedy?
2: Well, I think a farce is more mechanical. Uh, slamming frankly, doors
1: and running around. Slamming
2: it. doors and, and much more plotted. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's more like a Swiss watch. It doesn't have a lot of room to breathe. You don't want a long scene in a farce. And I've written a lot of plays out, I think, are have a high element of comedy. But the characters can rel- relax and breathe. Uh, a farce is much more plot-driven. A watch is how I, mm-hmm. you know like it, that's what I would compare it to. Swiss watch work, which is very delicate. You need a microscope. It's very satisfying, though, because by the end of the play, the simplest line, like, oh, I'll just go in the other room and get my hat, brings the house down, because the audience knows what he's going to find in the other room, or you know at the end of this one Googie thinks she's found the right man and uh she leaves <laughs> and then we find out who the man is and it's his, it's his name and it's one of the biggest laughs in the show you don't get that in a comedy usually but in a farce you can work up to that kind of laugh
1: and you mentioned uh, Rosie being Rosie Perez Rosie and, Perez and Kevin, uh, I mean, Kevin, Kevin Chamberlain
2: yes who both were born to do these parts and uh it's, you know, when you do a revival, uh, obviously uh, Rita Moreno had a great success as Googie Gomez. And I was as nervous probably as Rosie was. And she's made the part totally her own, just as Kevin has equaled Jack, uh, the wonderful Jack Weston in his performance. But it's, it's you know, you know, as a playwright, you want to be sitting in the corner saying, well, Jack did it that way, Rita did it that way. And you just want to give them their your blessing to be themselves in the parts. And both of them were so young, they hadn't seen it. 32 years ago, they hadn't seen it.
1: Well, Rosie said you showed up on the first day of rehearsal. You told them a little bit about this is a celebration of that era. That yeah. era. Then you disappeared. You didn't come back.
2: Well, that's a, that's a slight exaggeration. Uh-huh. But I, <laughs> Essentially. I peep around. I, 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 the older I get, I leave the acting to the actors or the directing to the director. And there's something I don't like in the scene. I go home and fix it. I did not use this as an occasion to rewrite the rich. So I said, let's be in sync. We are doing this revival because we all like the play. Because Let Loose, I would be rewriting it now. We'd still be in previews because it's very hard for a playwright like myself to say the play is finished because life changes every second. And I sort of hate opening night or the day they say the show is frozen. The critics are coming in tomorrow. No more changes. I could be rehearsing happily. One of my first plays was a play called Next that Elaine May directed, that James Coco started. We rehearsed for months, previewed for months. Finally, the producer said, I'm opening the show tonight. She said, we can't preview." Elaine was hysterical. We're not ready. We couldn't get anyone to come to the opening because they'd all seen it six times. (laughs) And we opened in a blizzard and got great reviews and ran several years, actually. But I know what Elaine meant. Rehearsals are a lot of fun. And you keep changing, let's try it this way. No, oh, what about this? This way might be even better. So it's, uh, it's kind of hard to say finished. You spoke
0: a moment ago about not even realizing how long it had been since you'd written The Ritz. And mm-hmm. since I don't imagine playwrights sit home and constantly reread their work, when this uh, re- first the workshop or the reading came up a couple of years ago, when you went back to look at the Ritz, did you remember it clearly, Did or did it even surprise you to look at your work
2: from 30 years ago? I remembered it pretty well. Some plays, I must say, I don't. Uh, I don't know why, because it was a very happy experience, even it was a lot of h- hard work getting the play right. It was just a great group 32 years ago, and I had fun. And... Uh, I don't know equity should know this, but uh, I used to put on a towel and wander around on the set because you could smoke in those days in a theater. So an opening night, I was, I was up on the third level in a towel smoking away. And uh, not, I wasn't half as nervous if I'd been standing at the back of the theater. So I remember the play very well and very fondly. And then the whole original cast, right after the play closed, we all went to London and made the film of it. So we became a real family. Uh, so I remember this one very well. Uh, there were no big surprises. Whereas other plays, plays I have been, wow. I've really forgotten. I don't know why I remembered The Ritz more than, say, we did a reading of a, uh, Lips Together, Teeth Apart, not so long ago to th- think there may be a reason to look at this one again. And I was surprised. I liked, it's a nice surprise, but I'd forgotten a lot of it. But you're right, playwrights, I don't think, stay home and read their old work. Going back to the original
0: production, certainly setting a Broadway show in a gay bathhouse was not standard Broadway fare no, at that wasn't. point. What was, certainly it was a hit, but what was the initial reaction when people heard about it, the, even the producer who took it on, what was, what was the surrounding
2: experience of the show I, going up? There was much more shock. risque laughs come much quicker now than in the original production where people were a little bit, oh, my God, they're in a gay bathhouse. or So this is what we've heard about. Because Bette Midler, you know, had been on the the Jack Parr show, and people were sort of hearing about this subculture. There was this bathhouse called The Continental that had entertainment and wild goings-on. And uh, so there was a definitely risque quality. The play now is real uh, GP entertainment, I would say. There's nothing risque about it. Now, the laughs are... There's very few bad words in the play. There's no one... You know, as in all sex farces, no one has any sex in it. They're in the pursuit of it. that makes us look so ridiculous trying to get laid. Uh, we don't think it's very funny in our efforts to get laid, but our Watching fellow man, other people have yes, trouble. Yes, because we were reminded of how foolish we become sometimes in the pursuit of eros. And in 1975...
1: What was the reaction to the Ritz from the gay community, and what is the reaction currently in 19, uh, 2007?
2: I think the gay community was originally very happy to see themselves represented on a Broadway stage. Uh, something like this might have been an off-Broadway play. And there it was, Broadway, with well-known stars in it. And I think that was very significant. Now younger people are learning there was a whole gay culture in this town before aids i mean so many young people i think think aids was the beginning of the gay sensibility in the city and it really wasn't and uh and i think it's nice to look back i mean there's no no denying the horror of aids but there was a time before that and i think it should be we should remember that as much as and we can't forget the other either
0: do you think the play in some ways is looked at as a history piece now about a particular time in, a, in American life and in American gay uh, I, life? I
2: think that's an element of it. Then I think the real mm. farce kicks in, you know, and it just keeps escalating.
0: Mm-hmm. There's so much of your career for us to talk about. You mentioned a few moments ago, Next, and that comes from the period where you were emerging, doing an enormous amount of one-act play work off-Broadway. Can you, can you take us back to your beginnings and how you got started
2: in that scene? Well, the 60s was the height of Off-Off-Broadway and Off-Broadway, which really, I guess, began while I was in college. When I came to New York, it was to attend Columbia College, and uh, the Three Penny Opera was running at the Théâtre de Lys. It was in the Théâtre de Lys, uh, the famous revival of The Iceman Cometh. So off-Broadway, people were going downtown. Broadway types were going downtown. But even those and were revivals. Those were revivals. But then uh, some producers started finding new playwrights, and I think the influential play of that period was obviously The Zoo Story, Edward Albee's. And because that was a one-act, I think maybe that's why a lot of us started writing one-acts. They seemed easier to get get on and uh the biggest change then was that there was just so much activity as compared today you can finish a script and then maybe a year or two before it even thinks of going into rehearsal it truly felt in the 60s when i began as a playwright that if i finished a script on friday it was in rehearsal on monday Obviously, that's a gross exaggeration, but it felt that way. Now it feels like I finished a play in 2005 and maybe we'll get a reading in 2008. And it's just the amount of production has really slowed down incredibly. Plays are much more developed now, I think, be, because of uh, production costs. Producers are trying to do readings, workshops. We just put the plays up uh, Workshops were unheard of in the 60s. We were just shooting them out. Uh, and place, a place like a Cafe Chino or La Mama, are very, I mean, there was a different show every weekend, and no one thought anything of it. Now the work was staggering, but we also were a hell of a lot younger than we are today.
1: Well, were there as many venues then as there are now?
2: More. 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 Yeah, and off-roadway you could make a living. Uh-huh. Off uh, next ran off Broadway for about three years, seven hundred and seven that's,
0: performances. So
2: that's I learned to support. I mean, I learned I was able to support myself. Now the common uh, wisdom is, uh, off Broadway is dead commercially, and you're better off uh, going aiming for Broadway with a bigger investment. I don't know if I agree with that. What we need are some mids excuse me, mid sized houses, three and some of those theaters, historic theaters like the Cherry Lane, the players, McDougal Street, they're ninety nine seats. Uh, you'd have to charge five hundred dollars a ticket to make a viable run there. Mm-hmm. In that era with the one acts, what
0: was also so interesting was your one acts were not being done as an evening of Terrence McNally, but it might be two or three other playwrights, mm-hmm. yeah, that so was f- fun. some of the people yeah, that you were on well, bills
2: with. Ted Mann produced an evening called Morning, Noon, and Night, which were three plays by myself, Israel Horovitz, and Leonard Melfi. Uh, Edward, uh, The Zoo Story, was on a bill with Samuel Beckett's. Crap's uh, last tape, which pretty much introduced Beckett as a playwright to this country, uh, successfully because he was known as the uh, author of the notorious flop "Waiting for Godot," which was a huge disaster when it first opened, and uh, this was the beginning of his incredible career. And Jack Richardson, uh, oh God, um, you know uh, <laughs> Arthur Copit. There are a lot of playwrights. Was that so, a
1: fairly common uh, occurrence to combine several different playwrights yeah, in Yeah, 20 people v-
2: like, they were so excited about this new generation of playwrights, let's get like a smorgasbord, three three for the price of one on a night. And I thought it was fun. And yeah, kind, of, kind of a little sampler. Yeah, sampler. Yeah, and, yeah. and playwrights tend to live rather isolated lives from other playwrights. And when I was much younger, I was really working with my fellow playwrights, and I sort of enjoyed that. And that's sort of gone away now. And the one act uh, play form has kind of lost some of its luster. It's just not done as much right now. And, was uh, there any
1: any sort of requirement or, or thought on the part of the producers to combine, say, three comedies in one evening or a comedy and a, and a drama? Was, was that ever a consideration? I think they
2: were hoping there'd be a thematic uh-huh. consistency. I mean, there was one evening call, three from column A, two from, you know, and, uh-huh. and uh, they, they made a lot of. They they tried to come up with interesting combinations, but finally I think people like a longer story and one point of view for the evening. It's very hard to find two plays that talk to one another, and I think there was a real relationship between um, Crap's Last Tape by Beckett and Albee's Zoo Story where sometimes the plays were so dissimilar it was like seeing a bad double feature at the movies (laughs) because double features were popular then. I remember when I first came to New York, I lived in the village. Lowe Sheridan was there, and there was always a B movie. And all that vanished, you know. You get less bang for your buck than you used to.
0: <laughs> Even as you're working off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway, you, you found your way to Broadway fairly quickly, though, my though first not, play. not not entirely successfully That's right, right yeah. off the bat. Can you talk about your early Broadway experience on the first play? This is uh, well, Things I, That Go Bump in the
2: Night? And, and Things That Go Bump in the Night. That was kind of a fluke, I guess. Uh, my first... Job when I got off college was as stage manager at Actors Studio. I'd written a one-act play, and I sent it to the playwrights unit. And Molly Kazan, Alia Kazan's wife, ran the playwrights unit. And she said, "You show a lot of talent. You can write dialogue. You have a sense of character and movement. But you have stage directions that could never be." realized, have you ever been in a play or worked in a play? I said, no, I'm a, I am was an English major at Columbia. I was going to be a journalist. She said, well, I have a job here. It doesn't pay very much, but you'll see how plays really get put together and what a director does, what an actor does, and what working playwrights, how they shape their script. So I spent about a year mainly dragging heavy platforms around and learning that Geraldine Page did not want mayo on her ham and Swiss, and Kim Stanley wanted mustard. Cool. But it was pretty exciting, and Marilyn Monroe was there in her mink and no makeup, so I was probably very envied to have this job. But I also started writing my first real play and Things That Go Bump in the Night, and we did it at the playwrights' unit. Someone saw it there and said, let's do this at the Guthrie Theater. The, Rockef- the brand
0: new Guthrie Theater, the probably Rockefeller in its first few years. The
2: Foundation wants to support, and while it's out of the season... The theater is going to be empty for three months. We'll put your play on. Uh, And that was the first time I really worked with professional actors. Uh, Ted Mann saw it out there and said, I want to bring this to Broadway. And we got a first thing we did, of course, was fire everybody who was in that production because they weren't names. So what we ended up with in New York (laughs) was very different from what had gone so well in uh, Minneapolis. And the play was not well received. It was very controversial. uh, And I did not see that coming and uh, I'll always remember a performance. Uh, Eileen Heckert was uh, one of the stars and a man, she wore a a gown with kind of a train to it and a man grabbed her by it from standing in the front row of the uh, Plymouth Theater, I guess the Jacobs now or the, forget the new name, Uh, and pulled her into the orchestra floor and said, how dare you be in this obscene, blasphemous play, blah, blah, blah. The actor Robert Drivers, who was playing her son, got, jumped off, started defending Eileen. A fist fight broke out in the aisles. And uh, I was like, wow, wow.
1: <laughs> Welcome to Broadway. <laughs> but, yeah, and
2: uh, I haven't had that kind of uh, reaction to play until many years later with Corpus Christi, but I, I certainly did not see that coming. But again, there was re- this was a drama, and there was a very frank relationship between two young men, and uh, I think it just uh, upset people terribly. And Eileen Heckert, up to that point, had played... Neurotic, but lovable (laughs) character, you know, she was the mother of the little girl that had been killed in the Bad Seed, she was the teacher in uh, Picnic, you know, she had those wonderful parts, she was a beloved person, and she was playing a bitch in this, and a very unpleasant woman, and her son was pretty unpleasant too, and they kind of destroyed this young man that her son had had uh, an affair with, and it was pretty heavy stuff, but it was my first play, I didn't know any better. I thought, oh, you know, fine. And uh, the interesting thing about that is in those days, plays used to run one performance if they got bad reviews. And when I read the reviews that night, I said, well, we've closed. And I wonder if I ever would have written again if it had been our last performance. Ted Mann called the next morning and said, we came in $30,000 under budget, which is unheard of. He said, I'm going to try running this play for two or three more weeks at a dollar a ticket on weeknights, $2 on Saturday and Friday, and I thought, no one's going to come, Ted. The, the line was around the block. It sold out every night for two weeks. And I felt like I belonged in the theater, because there were people who liked the play very much. Uh, none of them wrote for major newspapers. But it, I think if it had closed in one night, I wonder if I ever would have had the confidence to uh, put my fingers on a keyboard again.
1: And back then, what so, would take, the ticket price have been?
2: Oh, five. Five or ten dollars. Oh, less for a play, four to five dollars. Uh-huh. This is in the. This was sixty three, I think sixty four. I had it, my ticket for My Fair Lady, you know, it was six fifty, six seventy, wow. y- you know, orchestra in nineteen sixty. So
1: now, if a show like that, a play like that, were to open today, would it be as controversial? Do you think?
2: No, n- not in its theme. No, because hmm. uh, it was um, my writing's always been you know it is what it is i wear my heart on my sleeve i think and it's not like a metaphor for something you know these guys were two gay men having a rather graphic affair not that there was nudity but i mean it was not what what is it you know like uh, in williams what is the relationship between skip and uh brick and uh in uh, uh um you know the Elizabeth Taylor and their in Canada Canada Canada. Had it' was never really explicit mm-hmm. or or streetcar. Mm-hmm. what she really saw, I opened the door and I saw you know uh, this really you know what <laughs> you saw when you opened the door and it, and I think Broadway wasn 't ready for that yet i I certainly didn 't feel that consciously because i was I was twenty four years old I was not consciously trying to shock people. I was writing what I thought what I know about and which is what i 've always done. And sometimes you get in trouble for it and uh, sometimes people get it and sometimes they don't. And also a playwright is interpreted by other actors and directors and designers. A novelist is just you and his work. Here you're seeing my work as refracted back at you. And sometimes the the interpretation can be wrong or put the play in a different light. I think I've been very lucky with the directors and uh, actors I've worked with. I've worked with almost every great actor of my generation. Well, you
0: worked um, with certain actors very frequently mm-hmm. in the first part of your career: um, James Coco, Robert Drivas, Murray Abraham, I believe. Right. You know, were was it that you saw them once and just said, "I want to write for these people"?
2: Mm-hmm. How did how did that come about? It happens all the time. Someone comes into audition, they say three words, and you say, "I want them." And another actor can work for an hour and they don't hear your music. It's not just hearing the way you wrote the line. They share your sensibility. They know why it's a funny line, a sad line, an ironic line. They just, you, they, they're you. They they just get it. And when you find those actors, you class them to you with hoops of steel, as uh, Hamlet would say. And I was very lucky to find people like that. I was very lucky in my second play to have worked with Elaine May, where I really learned more about working for the theater. Because at Columbia, you're an English major. You study with... Uh, Eric Bentley, you don't learn anything about writing a play or what it's like to be in a rehearsal room. It's just liter- theater with literature. Elaine, it was really roll up your sleeves and work. And So I was very lucky to have had her for my second play.
1: So then when you work with these various actors, and Nathan Lane being another yeah. one, do you then write for them? Do you have them in mind when you write your subsequent work after you work with them the first time? Uh,
2: I write parts I hope they're going to want to do. Uh-huh. You know, the parts are never about them. I've never written a character remotely like nathan is in real life but he knows these characters i make up that he inhabits and you can hear in your mind him. yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's like composers writing for singers or violinists that you just you know he'll hear how to phrase that line with his violin and uh, it's great when it happens and i'm working with nathan again soon we're well it's a probably a year off but we're going to do a musical of catch me if you can together and uh you know, I haven't stopped working with any of these people, I hope. But, you know, sometimes their lives take them different places, usually to film or television. I stay back on the East Coast. And hopefully they return to theater eventually. Yeah, yeah well, Nathan has truly got the theater bug. We've spoken about the one-act era and
0: certainly yeah. your next... Uh, Broadway productions were you mentioned Morning, Noon and Night you had Mm -hmm. One of Three, Bad Habits was a double bill of your own work when The Ritz happened did that fundamentally change your career?
2: Was that Now I've Landed on Broadway? No, I've never had that play actually I I think I've been an inchworm just slowly going you know up, up, then Dak, up. I've never had that flat, you know, a major new dramatist uh, opened his mouth for the first time on Broadway. I mean, when you open with the, the the, the uh, things that go bump in the night had infamous reviews, not bad reviews, infamous. Uh, one review began, the American theater would be better off if Terrence McNally's parents had smothered him in his cradle. Now, you can't get much worse than that. So I have no expectations from reviews. And I think, Probably the best thing that ever happened to me is that I didn't get reviews saying, hats off, hallelujah, major new playwright, you know, was born last night with this play. Uh, Because one thing you say about my career, it's been a long one. I've been doing this for, you know, 45 years or getting on a 50, and uh, I've enjoyed every minute of it. But it's not been meteoric or I've never had that. Sometimes other f- friends of mine or young writers get it. I said, gee, that must feel awfully good. But that wasn't my story, and I'm very happy with the way my story has turned out. But I, I've mm-hmm. never, had, I never had that smash, smash hit from the critics. I mean, uh, Love, Valor was a big hit, but it had its detractors. Masterclass had its detractors, but they both ran a long time. They won the Tony Award. But uh, I've not had a death of a salesman or a Virginia Woolf, let's put it that way.
1: Well, you have had a long collaboration with Manhattan Theatre Club starting in mm-hmm. the mid-'80s through the-'90s, mm-hmm. something like 10 or 11 different lot plays. Oh, a lot of plays a there. A lot of plays there, yeah. It's wonderful
2: to have a home, artistic home. How did that start and, uh, well, and then develop? it started with bad habits. And uh, th- th- these uh, Lynn, Lynn Meadow and Barry Grove, who's still there, they were working out of a Polish... Leder Hall, or some name, on 73rd Street, way over at First Avenue. And I lived way west downtown. It took forever to get there on the subway (laughs) and the walk. And we did Bad Habits on Samsonite chairs. And the light cues were overhead switch on, overhead switch off, fluorescent lights. And that's the same play that opened on Broadway with the same cast, Doris Roberts, Mary Abraham, all these wonderful character actors. And we never we we by then i knew enough if this play worked it's because of actors and and robert drivus directed it it's because who had acted in my first play uh it's because of these people so don't go out and bring in names so we uh, and that had a very nice long run on broadway and they all went off to california <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: but at mtc you had an extraordinary run beginning in the mid 80s it's Only yeah. a Play in 86, Frankie and Johnny in 87, you contributed to Urban Blight in 88, The Lisbon Traviata in 89, A Revival of Bad Habits in 90, Lips Together, Teeth Apart 91, Perfect Ganish 93, Love, Valor, Compassion in 94. Yeah. Your
2: output was extraordinary. A part play. of it was because I had a home. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lynn said to me, Lynn Meadow, the, the first play they did was It's Only a Play, and she said, I want to do your next play. And she said it. There's a commitment. She said it before I'd written it, before the reviews for It's Only a Play had come out. And so many producers say, I want to do your next play. And or I, I want to really, see your
0: next play. I want to
2: see your next play. Anybody wants to see your next play. And so that commitment she made to me was very, very meaningful because it gives you a sense of security. Not, you don't fall in the trap of writing something, oh, I think they'll like this, or oh, I heard that they're looking for this. Uh, you write what you want to write and it was a wonderful relationship and I, who knows if I'll ever find my way back there, but we did We there were some bruised feelings over the production of Corpus Christi, no question about that and uh, and sometimes, you know, after 10 or 11 12 years with a play a year it's good to separate and take a deep breath and, you know and in that time they've opened that beautiful new theater on Broadway uh, so they've you know, they they hardly uh, miss me or need me. They're doing fine. and uh, uh, But I think maybe it was healthy. It was, got a little claustrophobic.
0: Well, let's talk a little about the plays themselves in yeah. that period because, again, I said, you know, I don't know how often you go back and look at your work. You commented that you'd looked at Lips Together, Teeth Apart. Do you feel that that was a particularly rewarding era in what you were able to write you say it was because you knew it would get produced mm-hmm. but but were there things that you were trying to explore in that period that that may have been different at other time than other times in well, your career
2: there are things i had the luxury of exploring and maybe i don't even know what they were but i had a place to to work on them i don't i'm not the kind of writer who who looks back and reflects on themes in his work i think that's for critics and audiences but to have a place so you're not running around they're looking for a comedy they're looking for a two-hander they want the play dealing with uh i just had lynn was bring me the play we'll do it and i hope i can i'm making that clear to you how important that is that you really what comes next out of your head as opposed to the commerce of the business or what is practical um they have good audiences there uh They have a very healthy subscription list. Another big thing was in those days, I could count on the actors I really wanted to write for to always be there. And it is harder to do a play now in New York uh, because actors are defecting uh, at an alarming rate to California. Because to work for $1,000 a week, eight shows a week is grueling. And you do a guest shot on a TV show for three or four days' work, and you get 25... And that's not even a famous actor, the people who are doing the hit. Like Doris Roberts, I mean, she did Bad Habits on Broadway for, I'm sure, whatever minimum was. But from that one, right out to California. And I think Doris not only is a great actress, she's a very wealthy woman now, uh, thanks to Raymond, and uh, deservedly so. And it's hard to get... They don't come back very often. Mm-hmm. Nathan is an exception; uh, he really is.
0: Well, one actor who is in uh, several of your plays in that era, Anthony Heald, mm-hmm. who most people know from his his film work and his mm-hmm. television work. Right. Um, but who were some of the other people in that period who who you were really having in your plays?
2: Well, Murray Abraham, and after uh, you know he, he he got cast in uh, Amadeus, he was not interested in doing theater, and he's just started coming back. Uh, Susie Kurtz lives out in LA she occasionally will do a play but uh Christine Baranski it's very hard to get her back uh, we hope to get her back la- you know in Maine it didn't happen but for a good 10 years a significant part of my artistic life I couldn't count on Christine being there she did three plays of mine in a row I think and uh it was wonderful there was a luxury she was there for me you know and Nathan Lane was always there I mean uh and uh I, I don't i hope i don't say this with any rancor it's uh, their careers too which take different directions but the talent pool available to me became uh smaller and smaller and i truly believe a new play a world premiere play is only as good as the cast that creates it i think shakespeare must have had extraordinary actors to one to inspire him to go from hamlet to king lear to uh, antony and Cle- cleopatra but in fact these plays Didn't disappear overnight. He had some great actors doing him. because you get the wrong production and those plays vanish, I believe.
1: Knowing in your mind what the available talent pool might be, does that influence, and if so, how, your subject matter that you choose and what you write, how how you write? In other words, knowing certain actors are going to be available for you, Mm -hmm. what influence does that
2: have? Uh, I think it's made me work a little harder saying, gee, I don't know who's going to play this part. I can't... Count on Nathan or Swoozy or Christine to do it. Or Kathy Bates was someone I had enormous success with, a play I wrote specifically for her. Frankie and Johnny. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> so now I just have to write a part that is so great. It's going to want to make Meryl Streep want to come back uh, to the theater. So it has It's made me maybe work a little harder. I certainly have not been writing lately, counting on these people. Uh, you know, myths get out that I wrote Deuce for Angela Lansbury and Marion Seldes. That's absolutely not true. You know, I didn't. I wrote it for two great older actresses, who they are, but I didn't say this part got Angie written all over You the didn't part. have anybody in mind? no. Or? no. But, I mean, you can think, who are they available? And uh, I certainly didn't think Angela Lansbury would even come back in a play. Uh, but she f- read it and said, I want to do this. So I was thrilled. And she was my first choice. But i that's one, you know, pie in the sky. But I'm a great believer of nothing ventured nothing gained. And I uh, think you think of the famous casting things when people are desolate, when Mary Martin turned down Eliza Doolittle. You know, it's hard to believe Mary Martin ever being a very convincing, you know, or they wanted Ethel Merman to be the original Dolly. And so it's who, it's who does it. Because I think in the rehearsal room, the actors, the director, and the playwright mainly discover what the play is really about. I don't think anyone knows what a play is really about at the world premiere until opening night. By then you figure it out. Now the world has an opinion of the play. The Ritz. Oh, it's hilarious. Oh, the Ritz. It's a t- old farce. But it was a brand new play then. No, none of us knew what it was until we gave birth to it in that rehearsal room. But it
1: surprised me that even you, the playwright, doesn't know what it's about. You've written it.
2: I know. I know the plot, yeah. but I don't know the effect it's going to have really? on people. Uh-huh. I don't know the real heart and soul, the heartbeat of the play yet. And now I think I do, but I couldn't... I would make a terrible director because I wouldn't be able... I've never wanted to direct. I don't know how a director helps an actor. I don't know how actors do what they do. Uh, The only time I ever tried acting was at that job at Actor's Studio I told you about a while ago. Uh, Frank Cassara directed a play. And he said, you'd be perfect. You know everybody here. You'd be perfect. They will said, oh, yeah. I played Jane Fonda's brother. And the day... And I didn't think i was great but i didn't mind the day we did the play i woke up threw up when we did the play in front of 60 or 100 people i knew everyone in the room i've been getting sandwiches and dragging furniture around for for a year you could see my knees shaking through my pants my voice had a tremor in it and i thought boy did i make the right career move not to, and i've never spoken a line written by anyone else in public since.
1: Except for that one brief appearance
2: in the bath towel and the wrist. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
0: well, that was a mute role. <laughs> Before we move on to talking about m- your musicals, which we certainly want the opportunity to do, I want to ask a particular question about Corpus Christi. Yeah. Not to revisit the controversy of the play being announced, withdrawn, then put back on the schedule, but as someone who's just described himself as sort of a working playwright inching along... Mm-hmm. Did the political and public firestorm of that experience affect your playwriting or your perception of working in the theater?
2: Uh, Yes. I don't think – I think plays have to be created in an atmosphere of calm and discipline. I think the play would have been better if I'd been allowed to finish my work on it, all of us, without the hysteria. And even though I went to almost every performance we did in New York, I never felt I saw the play because you had to go through police lines and metal detectors and pickets cursing you or applauding you. And about a year later, I happened to be in, uh, in Chicago, and I saw that they were doing Corpus Christi there. And I just quietly went and bought a ticket by myself, sat, and I really liked the play very much. But I felt I was enjoying it. I, you know, I wrote this. It's good. It's good. Whereas in New York, it was such a crisis every night. And uh, that place had a very long life, and uh, uh, it's reached a lot of people. And I think its time has come. I think that play was probably way ahead of its time. And I didn't realize, that's where I get a little naive politically, that, oh, you can tell the story of Christ and the apostles as if they were, you know, assuming they were gay men. Uh, And no one, you know, I've seen Christ's story told, they're all women, they're people of different races, uh, you know, no one said a word. So, but the thought of them being gay men, it was also a phony crisis in New York. And that it said the play had nudity and onstage sex, which it never, never did. So, people were attacking a play they had not seen or read, and there was just a smear campaign by the Catholic Anti Defamation League. And uh, uh, so, I think it. I think one day it'll get done, done again in New York. It's done in cities. When no one starts this hate campaign against it, it goes very well. There's been a production in L.A. It's been running for a year. They were just invited to the Edinburgh Festival. They were extended for a month. They went over to do 10 performances. They did 25. And they're going to tour this country around America, this production in small towns. They don't want to bring it to New York, but small towns and do it in churches. And that's what this play... That's what I want. It's a spiritual play. It's not a razz sex entertainment. So I found... Without me doing anything, the play has found it's, it's making its proper, proper journey on the stages of America mm-hmm.
0: to turn to your musicals, most people would look and say, "Well, his first musical was the rink." Um, there is a musical that you asked your name to be taken off of back right. in the '60s right. um, here 's where I belong." Mm-hmm. Just tell us briefly about that and why, after that experience, you were even willing to plunge back into musicals.
2: Well, here's where I belong. Uh, I, The producer wanted certain changes that I did not agree with, and Hanya Holm, who'd done My Fair Lady and Brigadoon, I, know she, I don't think she did Brigadoon, but I know she did My Fair Lady, Kiss Me Kate. Uh, we both left the show in Philadelphia and then arrived in New York and there was a poster with book by Terrence McNally. and I took full credit for the show in Philadelphia, but if someone's changing the dialogue or changing her dances, neither of us wanted our names on it, so it's that simple. The Rink, uh, I've always loved musicals, Candor and Ebb, uh, you know, and uh, they had a score, an existing score they'd worked with, another book writer. And uh, I like, I think The Rink is a wonderful score. Uh, it's, a, it's a tricky show. I learned never to write another musical if the score is already there, because you're Writing, you got to have a scene that takes place at dawn. Because You're filling in the gaps. They great, wrote this great song about dawn, but I, it was a wonderful experience, and I learned a lot there from working with Cheetah Rivera and Liza Minnelli, uh, who are so different but both brilliant. And their generosity, and I think they opened me up as a writer emotionally. They give so much of themselves, both of those women, when they perform. And there was a wonderful young director involved with that. It was his first big Broadway show, A. J. Antoun, who was one of the very early AIDS uh, victims. And that was you know, he did such a beautiful job on that show. And Graziella Danielle choreographed it who'd been one of the lettuce pickers in Here's Where I Belong. So there is a family of theater and oh my God, Grazie, you know, you're choreographing and I love that show and uh I, uh, I've i always liked musicals and uh, they probably got me into the theater because as a child I saw when I was brought to New York I saw musicals my parents didn't take me to see Death of a Salesman I probably would have been a little young for that one but I did see uh, some good musicals and uh, I loved the form and Ragtime was one of the joys of my life working on that how easily did you take to the
0: form? Because after writing your own plays, the idea that there were other writers in the process...
2: I take pretty easily to it. I think I think musically. I love opera, so I know you've got to give someone a chance to sing a big aria. And I think I love the form enough. Uh, I want the whole show to be good, and I think I can put my ego... I really am a very good collaborator on a musical. I think I'm a much worse collaborator on a play and uh, Fred Ebb always used the expression Terence is great to work with he lets us cannibalize his scenes and he once very generously read the scene as I'd written it and then uh, sang the lyric to show how much of the lyric had actually come phrases, whole sentences were I'd written and I, he was just saying, this is what collaboration is in the musical. Now. Well, I wrote those f- four lines so I should get, you know, some credit. It doesn't. It's not that way. And you have to enjoy that. If you don't enjoy collaborating, you'll really hate writing the libretto for a musical. You'll hate working in the theater, period, because theater is totally collaboration. And most people don't get that really. They think... Ethel Merman did it all, <laughs> and she didn't.
1: That first musical that you mentioned that only ran one performance. Yeah, I belong right That was nineteen sixty eight. Wow. The rank was nineteen eighty four. Sixteen years yeah. later, have you been wanting to do musicals during no. that period?
2: No, I'm very happy being a playwright, uh-huh. and uh, I have two musicals sort of in the pipeline. Uh, I did a. The, it will be the last Candor Ebb show, The Visit. Visit. Mm-hmm. We're going to do that in Washington uh, this spring, uh, in June and I'm very excited about that. We did it at the Goodman Theater. We opened about five days after 9-11. We couldn't get anyone to fly out to see it. We actually got best musical of the year from the Chicago critics over the producers, but very few people saw it, and they did not want a, it's considered a grim show. I don't think it is. I think it's very moving. And audiences in Chicago loved it. So I'm very excited we're going to get to do it again in Washington. And God willing, it will come to New York. And what are you doing in Washington? Uh, Next June. In June. Yeah. Yeah. So less than a year. And you have mentioned already Uh, Catch uh, Me If You Can. Catch Me If You Can. Can. But those are the only two. I consider myself a playwright, but if the right... But sometimes someone... I'd say nine out of ten times when people say, would you like to make a musical of And I say, thanks, but that's just not for me. But, like, The Full Monty is a movie that spoke to me so deeply. And I said, I'd love to do this, but... You have to let me make it in America and add some characters. I can't have guys all night putting on records and dancing that recorded music. So I thought of the character of Jeanette, the piano player. I loved working on that show. I couldn't say no to it. And then you know, I got to work with Jack O'Brien and Jerry Mitchell and David Yazbek, who I think is such a wonderful new voice for the theater. So it's... I don't say no to musicals, but I'm not looking to do them. Whereas I think there's some writers who consider themselves as librettists, and they're always looking for the next project.
1: Well, um, it was, it was uh, 16 years between your first and your second musical yeah. being The Ring, and uh, another nine years to your next musical, really? also at Candor yeah. and because the Spider Woman. But
2: I wrote a lot of plays Oh, you in wrote a lot too. of plays, yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So how did the second Candor and Ebb collaboration came out? The first one, well, you were brought in to kind of rewrite well, The Well, again,
2: rink. it's you have that instinct. Uh-huh. The phone rang, and... Uh, and John and Fred said, hi, we're sitting here with Hal Prince in his office. I said, you know, I'm Hal Prince. Oh, my God. And Hal says, we're interested. Would you consider making a musical of Kiss of? And I, I just said, I hope he says of so, the Spider Woman. That's how quickly I said yes. I tell people, guess what I'm going to do next? Kiss of this. Are you nuts? That will make a musical. I would have said the same thing about Pygmalion. What? You're going to try to make Eliza Doolittle and Henry Higgins sing? Terrible idea. So it's what's you think it's good. I had the same reaction from almost all of my friends on Ragtime. How can you musicalize Ragtime? It's impossible. I thought it was the most natural idea for a musical. I wish I'd had it. You know, it was not mine. But boy, I jumped I jumped to do it, and I was so glad that it worked out. And that's a show I'm, I'm very, very proud well,
1: the, of. Well, those shows, Ragtime and Kiss of the Spider Woman, you were the original writer on those. You weren't brought in. So mm-hmm. how was that process different, though, than being brought in?
2: Oh, totally to- different. You're there from the first day. and The only show I was brought in on was uh, The Rink. Rink, right. And as I said, I'd learned that's not for me. That's, that's not for me.
1: So working with Candor and Ebb, for example, or any other you know write, uh, songwriters, um, who leads whom? Do you do the story first, and they I, write I, the songs to your story? I, I
2: think I'd say the book writer leads. So that's uh-huh. how Candor and Ebb... Lynn Ahrens and Stephen Flaherty, who I did Ragtime and Men of No Importance with, they prefer... There's a play somewhere called The Man of No Importance that I wrote with knowing they're going to musicalize, so you write it a little bit differently. M- the biggest mistake uh, some people make is they believe you r- write parentheses, mother sings a song mm-hmm. expressing her sense of abandonment while her father, while her husband goes off to explore the North Pole with Adam Perry. You know, I wrote a scene between the mother and Father and Ragtime, that Lynn and Stephen turned into that gorgeous song, Travel On, and, which opened the show after the big prologue thing. But you have to write the scene to give them images. But a lot of people think you just fill it, the composer fills in those blanks. So it doesn't say insert song no, here. No, I've never written that stage track. There's times I wish I could, but, <laughs> but uh, it's pretty thrilling when a phrase of yours, you know, the last song of mothers in... Uh, it's our 11 o'clock number, I guess, in Ragtime, as we could never go back to before. That was a line of dialogue. I'm honored that Lynn decided to build a whole glorious song about how women were changing, how the world was changing. Uh, Ragtime, I think, is a it was very well-rated show, but still underrated. We, you know, opened, and then just before the Tonys, Lion King came in with all its razzle-dazzle, and it's a wonderful piece of theater. But I think there's a lot of... Greatness in ragtime that hasn't been appreciated yet, and I uh, just the other night I was singing that sequence called New Music, where in one musical number Lynn and Steven show how the world has totally changed since father went off on his four-year expedition to the North Pole and it has done through music that rag is a change of uh, is a symbol of social change and I just want that to be seen again
1: and in kind of the same sense as the Ritz having a very very large cast would make it probably difficult Uh, to revive it at some point at least in in, in the same scope that originally was presented you
2: know there is a production done at a prison two people do it in front of a basket with hand puppets, and that's totally rethinking it. It's not what we wrote, but it won so many prizes. There's a production of it in Chicago now with a cast of, I think, eight, and it won, what they give, the Sarah Siddons Award. It swept all the prizes there against big, lavish shows. That's a director finding a way to deal. Lynn, Stephen, and I have nothing to do with it. They found a way to reconceive it. That's financially feasible. I'm glad we got our epic version that had a cast of 56 when it opened
1: and so when you're 56 when you're when you're writing a show like that do you have to keep in mind this is going to be very expensive
2: to produce no i i, I mean you say up front you know this is going to be a big show yeah. and uh, the visit takes place in a village you can't have two people <laughs> representing the villagers of Brocken I mean they'll say no wait where are they and and the Ritz you can't say I'm oh, at the baths and there's two people wandering around there's got to be a credible 10 to 12 people in the audience say oh okay I can accept there's maybe 100 people there so uh, the producer should know what he's doing before also you should make sure you sign with a producer who has those kinds of pockets but uh, what makes theater expensive is not just the size of the cast. I think uh, it's unions, advertising, promotion, the rent of the theaters. I mean, if people knew what it costs to rent a theater a week, they would be appalled. So, And the actors are not getting the money. They're not.
0: As we talk about your process, Spider-Woman, you've acknowledged, had problems out of town. Now, mm. it wasn't so far out of town. It was only Purchase, New York that right. time. But what is the process of of reworking a show in that case? What had to be done to make it the success that it was? Well,
2: the minute I saw the show in Purchase, I knew what was wrong with it. And, uh, and then despite our best uh, efforts, Frank Rich and the New York Press came up and reviewed it. And I absolutely agreed with their reviews. So John, Fred, and I had to rewrite the show and hope to find a producer who was willing to take a chance on it again. And we found that in Garth Drabinski because we believed in the show and the score was wonderful score. The the problems were pretty much my, my, my fault, I thought, the book. And I'd followed uh, the movie and the novel too closely. And so uh, we did a major rewrite on the book and some couple of new songs, and it worked what What did you change? What was the key? Uh, the biggest change was in the novel, the story that he 's recounting of her film is this fantastic magic realism kind of story, which was kind of incoherent in the movie. They made it a political filler about nazis and and uh, freedom fighters. And the stories were just too long to sustain. So when I rewrote it, he remembered scenes like she was a great star, like Fred, not Fred Astaire, obviously not, say, uh, Ginger Rogers. Uh, she made many different kinds of films. So you got a, a, a resume of her career, and that worked much, much better than trying to sustain after a long book scene. Now, remember I was telling you last night Aurora was about to be, and it just worked so much better. And it gave John and Fred a chance to write a couple of new songs that made a big difference. That wonderful Russian sequence that opened Act Two when she made a film about the revolution. And uh, uh, you don't look like you remember that sequence, but it was wonderful. Uh, it just gave us a freedom to do that. And uh, that was the biggest difference. But the main things like that, the f- wonderful finale when he dances with her and the song Kiss of the Spider Woman, those were always there. Uh but we were very lucky. But see, again, shows need development time, and that's why they used to go out of town. And I think the the thing that's hurt the theater the most, probably, is that they're not allowed to go out of town, because and, and, I think your work plays better before a paying audience than it does a bunch of friends at these workshop productions uh, at the Duke Theater on 42nd Street. And there's one going on every day you know everybody in the audience your friends wish you well your not not so friends wish you not so well and it's not a real the theater is strangers who said yeah here's my well now it's a hundred dollars what do you got for me and you can learn much more from them I think than all these endless workshops and that's why we went out of town and when the road dried up I think it really has hurt the theater That and the fact so many shows, especially musicals, are driven now by the production, not by the star. And I still think theater, you go to see a Nathan Lane, you go to see Ethel Merman, you go to see Lee J. Cobb, not so-and-so's production of. And it doesn't matter who's in it. I think it matters very much who's in the play. And that's what we have that's unique from any other art form. You have to come to New York City if you want to see... But last night, uh, uh, Kevin Klein, as Cyrano, those reviews make you want to see it. But you have to come to New York City to see it. It's not a movie. You have to stand in line and get a ticket. It may not be the best seat. You might be further in the back and to the side than you'd like, but you're there. And, you know, the first night I was in New York City, I knew nothing. I got on the subway from Columbia, went right to the Mark Hellinger Theater and said, I'd like standing room for My Fair Lady. And the guy looked at me like I was nuts. He said... You know, the show just opens, the biggest hit ever. If you want standing room, you have to sleep in the sidewalk because we opened the box office at 10. The 20 standing room seats are gone by 10.01. So it was like 8.15. Shows were at 8.40 then. And I said, Oh, two blocks away, Gwen Verdon was doing Damn Yankees. Saw that for a dollar, got back in line at the Mark Hellinger. Now, that's not an ideal way to see the theater. I don't want to do it anymore, sit on the sidewalk. It was August or early September, so it wasn't cold. But in two nights, I'd seen Gwen Verdon and Rex Harrison and Julie Andrews for $2, and I'll never forget that. And the movie, I don't remember where I saw the film of My Fair Lady or Damn Yankees, or where I sat.
0: <laughs>
2: you are a renowned opera buff, yeah.
0: and you have now written some opera libretti uh, portion of the Central Park Trilogy and the full opera of Dead Man Walking, the experience of writing in that medium as opposed to for the dramatic or musical stage.
2: Well, there, you know, it's all going to be sung and you try to write maybe a little more lyrically, but I'm not a poet. And Jake Hagee and Sister Helen, who wrote the original book of uh, Dead Man Walking, I said, you know, it's going to be sort of just the way I write. And Jake said, "That's what we want." And he edited some, but it's not poetic libretto. The success of that opera has astonished me. It's, it just opened at the Vienna opera, State Opera, you know, where *Fidelio* had its world premiere, where Mozart conducted, Mahler, Leonard Bernstein stood at that, and there's Jake's music coming up. And
0: and now uh, you can be an answer on the Metropolitan yeah, Opera yeah. Quiz rather than <laughs> one who comes up with the answers.
2: So I don't know if I'll do another opera because it's. All these projects take time, and i'm gonna be sixty nine years old tomorrow and uh you start thinking what what I gotta save my energies a little bit, and I still want to sit under a tree and read some books. I haven't done enough of that, and uh I think too much theater can get you a little insular and i uh, want there's a big world out there, and a lot of very interesting interesting stuff is going on i think I want to be really involved in this election next year <laughs> and not be so busy with rehearsals. And rewrites that I can't do anything.
1: I'd like to read a a statement attributed to you um, that you advise new and established playwrights to. And this is a quote. Write plays that matter. Raise the stakes. Shout, yell, holler, but make yourself heard. It's time for playwrights to reclaim the theater.
2: Yeah, I believe that, and I try to do it. I'm glad to hear it again. It inspires me. I've been feeling very inspired lately. Uh, I feel a new second wind, and I don't know where it came from. It just started a couple of days ago, and... Maybe it was a revival of the Ritz, you know. Oh, I know it. They opened a new theater in Philadelphia uh, last Monday and they honored me by doing... I knew nothing about it. I said, I don't want to know who's going to show up. And I thought it was going to be a roast, you know. Oh, I remember we were working on bad habits and he couldn't find the ending. And it was just people like Nathan Lane, Edie Falco, uh, Marion Seldes, Edward Albee. I, I, I can't even begin to think of them all. They all came out and did excerpts from my work And I suddenly was able to take it in, and I said, I've been working long and hard for 40 years, 45 years, and I feel good about it. And I think it's given me a second wind, and I I don't think I'm going to get another 40 years, but (laughs) I'll settle for another good 10. I'll be very happy with that. Well,
1: Terrence, thanks so much for being with us today. My Some pleasure. very interesting it's insights and comments. Great thank to you. talk
2: to you both. You've made
0: it very easy. I appreciate that. Thanks. Thanks, Terrence. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org
1: And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you.
0: The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.